to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, business continuity, COVID, wellness, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Longtime listeners and viewers will know that I was speaking at uh, the BCI World Virtual Conference in 2021 in the fall, and my hope was uh, maybe I could get a couple of the speakers to come on the show and talk about their topic or a related topic. Today is one of those days where I'm lucky enough to get one of those speakers. In fact, he's the author of Crisis Proof, How to Prepare for the Worst Day of Your Business Life. Yikes. I'd like to welcome to the show author and expert, crisis management expert, Jonathan Hemus. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm really pleased to be here. As I I mentioned your book, uh, it happened to come two days ago. So even though I ordered it longer than that, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to uh, to read the book. But I have your presentation. I'm looking forward to uh, to the book and reading and congratulations on it as well. Thank you. Now, we've shared emails back and forth. I Mm -hmm. I know who you are and what you've done, but could you take a moment to tell our global listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself, what you do, and also how you got into this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm the managing director of a specialist crisis management consultancy called Insignia. We work with leaders of businesses around the world to help them plan, train, rehearse and sometimes handle the worst days of their business lives. And we do that through developing crisis management plans, training crisis management team members, running exercises of all kinds. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, also uh, advising during crisis situations. And we operate right across the sectors, uh, financial services companies, uh, airlines, Cathay Pacific, For example, retailers, Lidl, which is one of the uh, biggest supermarket supermarket groups uh, in Europe, through to mining. We work for Anglo-American and media. Um, Sky is a client, for example. And um, I think like most people uh, doing jobs like mine, uh, when I was at university or a teenager, I never imagined that I would end up as a crisis management consultant, which I've been doing now for 25 years. I guess I didn't even know what a crisis management <laughs> consultant was at that stage. Um, but really, I mean, the short answer to your question as to how I got here is that I was always interested, or certainly from teenage years onwards, in business, in communication, and in people. And I think crisis management uh, is a situation where those three things very much 
come together. So my early career was in corporate communication, uh, working in-house at a, at a quoted uh, company, um, communicating about acquisitions and also problems and issues that the organization faced from time to time. Moved into corporate communication consultancy and about 25 years ago um, was asked to become head of the global crisis and issues management practice at a firm called Porter Novelli, a global consultancy. And that was a fantastic opportunity because in my preceding years, I had very much learned that the bit of communication that I loved the most was um, when times are challenging. It's when communication really matters. Set insignia up 13 years ago because uh, it's great being in a big consultancy, but I really wanted to specialize in my area of passion because, you know, I've seen how many organizations have suffered as a result of a mishandled crisis. But just as painful and kind of annoying to me is not just the damage they do to themselves, but also to their stakeholders. So my mission now really is to help businesses and their leaders to avoid the needless damage that can be caused by a mishandled crisis. And that was also the motivation for writing the book. So uh, that's me, Alex. Oh, well, welcome to the show. And, and uh, you know, after all of that, I'm surprised you found time to, to be able to write a book. <laughs> well, there was a little bit more time last year than uh, I'd anticipated, because as you can imagine, uh, many people, rather than training for a crisis or rehearsing their crisis response, were actively in crisis mode. So whilst uh, we were extremely busy on the consultancy side, it did create a little bit more time to write the book that I'd always planned doing, but of course had never got, got round to. So they say out of crisis comes opportunity. And uh, for me, that was the one opportunity that came last year that I'm really pleased I grabbed. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. And same thing occurred to me. All of a sudden, I had time and I wrote and published a book as well. So <laughs> it's interesting. And I interviewed someone the other day who did the same thing. So I guess a lot of us have some time to yes. get some idea, pull some ideas out of our head. Absolutely. Let's jump into, let's jump into your talk uh, from the BCI World uh, Conference. Um, and that was entitled uh, How to Guide Leaders Through the Worst Days of Their Business Lives. And you start off by uh, talking about the challenging um, risk landscape. Can you tell us about uh, what you were talking about there? Yeah, it's really, I mean, I touched on it just a couple of seconds ago that um, out of crisis comes opportunity. And for people that work in crisis management and business continuity, clearly none of us would have wanted last year and what's continuing uh, to have happened. But one of the things that it did do uh, was brought to the attention of uh, leaders of businesses who before had never had to endure a crisis, thankfully, the importance of being prepared for them, because there were organisations that uh, responded to last year's extraordinary challenges really well. And there were those that maybe hadn't planned and prepared and struggled even more than those who had put the time in beforehand to developing good crisis management plans. So I guess, you know, that very much brought crisis management uh, into the forefront of uh, leaders' attention. And I guess I can only say, sadly, you know, 2021 um, bring, has brought an even more challenging uh, risk landscape because clearly the 
um, pandemic has has continued, um, but we also have other um, challenges as as business leaders. So we know the environment is uh, very much uh, on the agenda at the moment, and uh, environmental activism and pressure is absolutely on the rise. So for organisations that may have an environmental impact, that is definitely a rising issue. We know that uh, there are technological risks, and in particular, um, cyber incidents, cyber attacks. Um, that clearly has been a growing risk for the last decade, and in particular over the last three to five years. Um, sadly, the cyber criminals you know, took advantage of the pandemic um, and you know, recognised that people might be more vulnerable when they were working from home, didn't have the same uh, corporate security around them, might actually be uh, less minded to flag the fact that they may have clicked on uh, a wrong link. And also, again, and this is horrible, the way that criminals' minds work, but you know, the ability to send phishing emails supposedly from banks helping people at a time when they're struggling financially or supposedly from health departments or um, healthcare providers asking you to click on a link. You know, the pandemic provided opportunities. So um, technological risk is, is another big one, um, particularly um, cybercrime. And we also know that reputational risk is on the increase um, you know, behavioural issues, cultural issues, um, the way that uh, ethics play out in organisations, that is also on the increase. So um, crisis management and business continuity professionals have been, I think it's fair to say, fully employed over the last 18 to 24 months. And whether we view it as um, problem, challenge or opportunity, I certainly see that continuing for the foreseeable future. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't look like the things are going to end anytime soon. Interesting, you talked about the uh, phishing emails and things like that. I noticed an increase in my own inbox. Um, and a couple of times I've actually been caught because they were real, <laughs> real yes. emails that I just kind of went, no, nah, I'm not quite sure about that, delete. And then someone calls a week later, did you ever get that notice? <laughs> you know, I need yeah. it. Yeah, like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought it was well, phishing. <laughs> That's true, but much, much better that way around than the other. Yeah, the alternative could be, you know, devastating. Yeah. Um, with crisis management uh, and some of the things that are occurring, what are some of the pressures that leadership and organizations are under? What, what kind of things are they facing when faced with all of this? Yeah, and this is one of the things that fascinated me and to an extent baffled me uh, when I first got into crisis management more than 20 years ago. The fact that, you know, really successful businesses, much of my businesses led by very experienced business people, seem to do irrational and counterproductive things when faced with a crisis. You know, mine is not the first crisis management textbook to be written, um, so why haven't, you know, some of the lessons from the previous textbooks and experience uh, been applied? And, you know, now that I've been in this area for 20 years or more, I think I know some of some of the answers. And the first one is um, literally that the organisation is facing and the leaders of the organisation are facing an extraordinary challenge. This is not business as usual. Um, 
and a crisis brings with it um, unique factors which can cause leaders to do irrational things. So there's uncertainty. Um, crises always bring uncertainty. There's speculation. We don't quite know what's going on. We certainly don't know what's going to happen next. So we don't have the facts. We don't have full, full visibility. Everything is very fluid and dynamic. Um, secondly, time pressure. You know, we can all make good decisions if we have a week or a month or three months to evaluate everything and consider all the pros and cons and then make a decision. In a crisis, you may be required to make decisions, certainly, certainly within hours, sometimes within minutes, with incomplete information and with very, very high stakes. What we know is that organisations that get their crisis response wrong suffer significant consequences. Likewise, the individuals that lead those businesses uh, suffer significant consequences in terms of losing their job uh, or all sorts of other uh, negative outcomes. So there's a real kind of uh, emotional pressure going on there, which causes adrenaline to flow and the amygdala in the, brain to, in the brain to start flashing. And then you combine that with kind of the more rational reasons why maybe organisations don't always succeed in a crisis. It can be as simple as they haven't developed their crisis management plan, or maybe the people required to deploy that plan haven't been trained, or they haven't found the time to um, rehearse their response and put those two things together. You're under extraordinary pressure. Uh, you've got high stakes, lack of information, lack of time, and you've never actually worked out how you're going to operate in a crisis. And all of a sudden it becomes uh, less surprising that leaders uh, sometimes fail to follow the golden rules of crisis management. And uh, for me, the rehearsal bit is really, really important. I always say, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. If we think about uh, football, soccer. Um, you who's, your, who's your team? My team is Aston Villa. Um, so we have oh, a wow. relatively recent new manager in the form of Stephen Gerrard, ex of Liverpool. Oh, uh, Stephen, Gerard is, uh, Stephen Gerard is okay, but Aston Villa, I don't know. Maybe we should end this interview. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm come just on, kidding. Alex. <laughs> Let's be friends. Kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned something uh, before you go uh, too far that I, I thought, uh, as you were talking about leadership you know, and the, the timing and the, the yeah. need of them, is there, it got me thinking, is there a gap in our training of these leaders because they go to university, college, or all these training courses to learn how to keep the uh, bottom line flowing, shall we say, yeah. right? And, and uh, hopefully delegate work and everybody work to a common goal and vision. Yeah. Yet there doesn't seem to be anything about crisis management training if something goes wrong. It seems to be that that's left up to uh, either a crisis management person or a business continuity person to train the leader on how to do this. So is yeah. there a gap somewhere here? It sure feels like it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's actually another of my personal passions that, in fact, I'm a, a visiting uh, lecturer at Aston University Business School, which is one of the top business schools in the 
UK and lecture on their uh, MBA course because of exactly what you have described. Crisis management skills, unless you're a very uh, careless organisation, are not required every every day of the year. Mm-hmm. But when they are required, boy, are they required. And the way of the way that uh, leaders operate during business as usual do not work in a crisis. And I think, you know, particularly for senior leaders, you're not going to have a crisis, as I say, every week. But you probably will have several, if not more than several, major incidents during a career And those are defining moments, both within your career and in the history of the organisation which you are leading or part of the management team of. And so I absolutely believe that um, the skills required uh, in crisis management should be essential uh, parts of the curriculum for all aspiring leaders. And the other reason why I think it kind of makes sense even if you never have, you know, fortunate enough never to endure a crisis, actually the skills that you learn in crisis can be applied to business as usual. At a very simple level, one of the requirements, this is a real practical example, but in a crisis, you must have really well-structured, really purposeful, really effective meetings where you get the best out of your team but you don't allow the meeting to drift and you reach decisions and actions quickly, well, wouldn't that be quite useful in business as usual? How many times have we sat in rambling, meandering meetings when it's not quite sure by the end of two and a half hours what we've decided? So that's just one very practical example. But there are many others whereby, as I say, even if you never endure a crisis, the skills that are relevant in a crisis are absolutely relevant in business as usual, but not necessarily the other way around. Yeah, because I've, I've noticed that, uh, especially over ever since I've been doing Voice America and, and the YouTube channel and talking to so many people, that there's a push to for business continuity people, crisis management people, um, emergency managers, you can go on down the line with different groups here. Make sure you're training your executives. Okay, the executives aren't getting trained on crisis management in their curriculum, as you say. Yeah. Well, a lot of these other people aren't being trained on how to train either. They're just being told to train these other people. So we it feels yeah. like we've got students teaching students. Yes. And no real uh, proper way to train people. Here's how you deal with executives, you know, yeah. and how to, uh, what they're looking for yes. to make that better, right? That whole piece yes. seems to be really wishy-washy and you know all over the place no i agree and that uh was one of the biggest if not the biggest motivation actually for writing the book because what i'd recognized when working with our clients is that often responsibility for crisis management within an organization actually is given to someone who may not themselves necessarily have been trained in crisis Mm -hmm. management And yet they're given this really kind of exciting, but also uh, important responsibility and expected to um, lead that function within the organization. And they probably, by the way, also got a day job. You know, as you've said, some of them may be business continuity professionals, but some of the people given responsibility for crisis management might be 
heads of communication or mm-hmm. head of health and safety or head of risk or head of security. And so actually, and the book is not, but is certainly not the total solution, but the book is aimed at people like that to give them uh, a framework and the knowledge to be able to fulfill that role successfully. Um, but, and it, but the other bit you mentioned, it's also critical um, to engage with the leaders of the business um, because ultimately the professionals within the business, they can advise, they can lead, they can support, but it's the leaders who will make those critical decisions that determine the fate of the organization and its stakeholders when, 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 when the worst occurs. Well, let's talk about leaders a little bit more. How mm-hmm. do you get their buy-in on some of this? Yeah, it's, um, it can be, it can be a challenge. I mean, there are organizations and there are leaders where the leader simply gets it. And that is the ideal situation. And I think, you know, all of the, um, really successful and you know most admired leaders in a crisis it comes from within they recognize the importance of committing to planning training rehearsal and they step forward when the crisis happens and they lead in a way which is uh, empathetic which focuses on the human side of the crisis which looks at it from the outside in uh, and they also lead from the front and it's a joy when you, you know, have a leader or a leadership team um, that fulfills that criteria. That isn't always the case. And so um, sometimes it is about um, persuasion, lobbying, influence, building a case. And I guess, you know, one of the um, one of the critical factors and one of the keys to success, I think, is getting your timing right. So in other words, um, If an organization, if your organization has just had a near miss or a minor incident, that can be a good time for having that discussion around, well, what about if that had got got worse? Might it not be an idea to have a look at the plans if we've got them or develop a plan if we don't? Let's rehearse, you know, a response to this situation that actually got worse. Another another example, which I've seen... um, kind of happen on many occasions during my career is jumping on competitor crises and using that as a catalyst. Um, I recall, you know, here in the UK, when we had the horse meat uh, scandal where burgers and such like were full of horse rather than uh, beef, um, the amount of uh, food companies that came to us uh, wanting to have their plans audited, wanting to rehearse, because they'd seen it happening to competitors, not actually to them, but all of a sudden that could be us. So I would be very much uh, looking out for competitor incidents uh, and taking those to your leadership team. And I found that 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 really works because leaders very much empathize and can recognize that if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. And third thing, I talked about the different functions that kind of look after crisis management within businesses. I think sometimes those functions can be siloed. And I think there's a real opportunity for the health and safety folk, the business continuity folk, the communications people, the risk people, you know, the cybersecurity people to come together 
and to jointly lobby uh, their colleagues and leaders. Uh, don't do it as individuals. Build a build a coalition, um, and I think that can be really really powerful too. It's good to hear you mention all those different groups working together because I've been saying that for twenty years. Yeah, you know, can't work in silos, and I'm mostly business continuity, so I'll yeah, that industry. I can't do business continuity properly without health and safety, without crisis management yep. applications, without all these other groups. I need their input. We have to work together to make it yes. work. So I'm really happy to hear you say that. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Jonathan Hemus, speaker at BCI World Virtual 2021 and author of Crisis Proof. And we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune into Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. 
Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Jonathan Hemus, author of Crisis Proof. Uh, Jonathan, lots of great information in the first segment, and I really enjoyed our chat about the training piece there. Uh, I'm really happy to hear what you had to say there about the gaps. But let's move on now to uh, what do organizations need to have in place pre-crisis where things may seem like bunnies and rainbows, but they're not going to last. So what should they have in place? Yeah, I mean, my uh, strong view and indeed my experience and all the evidence I've seen says that it's not having a crisis that necessarily causes damage to an organization. It's how they respond to the crisis that has the power to cause damage. And what I've also uh, experienced is that, therefore, it is what you do before the crisis that will determine how you respond uh, to a crisis situation. So, um you know, I touched on sport before the break. For me, not preparing for a crisis is a bit like uh, a football team uh, about to play in the World Cup final, the biggest match in the world, uh, with high stakes, great pressure, once in a lifetime opportunity or challenge, and not bothering doing any training or thinking about tactics or who's going to play what role in the team. It just wouldn't happen. But a crisis is like the kind of anti-World Cup final. It's the biggest day in the life of that organisation and its leaders. And yet some organisations seem to think that it's okay to go into that biggest day without ever having planned, trained or rehearsed. So I think it makes a massive difference to the outcome, what you do before the crisis. So in simple terms, it is about planning. In other words, developing uh, an effective 
crisis management plan. Now, a couple of words on what I believe an effective crisis management plan is. For me, a crisis management plan can never be um, an answer to every question or every challenge that you may be confronted with in a crisis. What it should be is a structured, purposeful way of working supported by checklists and materials and prompts and processes that facilitate a purposeful, effective way of working, whatever crisis you may be facing. Ideally, it should also be supplemented with risk-specific checklists against your key risks. But what I really want to strongly counsel against is uh, a pure playbook approach, which has multiple risks covered off, but that is all that it contains. Because if you limit yourself to very detailed checklists against your 10 top risks, then of course, the danger is that the 11th, 12th or 131st risk occurs and your beautifully crafted plan, which suits the first 10, does not suit the one that's emerged. So please make sure that the plan, the core plan, can be deployed whatever the crisis is. So that's the first thing that organisations need to do before, crisis, before a crisis. The second thing is they need to make sure that the people who will be required to be part of a crisis management team know what they need to do. So a crisis management plan has little more than zero value if the people required to deploy it haven't been briefed on it and haven't been trained on what they would need to do. Um, so it is essential that the people on the team, A, are briefed on the plan. What does it contain? Give them an understanding of it, you know, an initial walkthrough. And B, then are trained on um, the particular role or roles they might be required to play. And it can be really what sounds like a simple role. Let's take the log keeper. Well, anybody can write on a whiteboard or, you know, an online flip chart, can't they? Well, yes, but if you then imagine that you're having to do that in a situation where, again, emotions are running high, the, the, the leadership team is in discussion or debate, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of emotion, they're maybe not making the crispest decisions, that is not an easy job to do. Therefore, the person playing that role needs to be given training, not just on how to write on the board, but how to make sure that the team is giving to them what they need to put onto that, that board. So training is the second thing. The third thing is rehearsal. Um, and for me, real crisis preparedness only occurs when the team has rehearsed its, its response and has rehearsed it on multiple occasions. Because on the first occasion they rehearse, you know, they will do well if they score, you know, six or seven out of 10 because they've not done it before. But from six or seven out of 10, the next time you do it, it's going to be eight or nine out of 10. But it's only by experiencing what a crisis feels like, by getting the opportunity to make decisions under pressure and deploy your plan in a realistic scenario-based exercise that you gear yourself up for the real thing. So in brief, those are the three things that need to be in place to give you confidence that the organisation will respond well when the worst occurs. 
Now you've got me wondering who needs to be a part of this crisis team, because we've obviously talked about leadership. Yeah. Um, then we've talked about other people that are putting the plan together. You've mentioned a yeah. scribe. Yeah. But, um, who really needs to be a part of this crisis management team? So we would tend to advise um, having um, crisis management specific roles represented on the team. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you a few examples. So clearly you need uh, a chair or a team leader. That person does not have to be the most senior person in the organization. It needs to be someone who commands the respect of that team. They must be senior, but they don't have to be the most senior person. They will typically be the person um, chairing the meetings and making the big calls. The reason why it doesn't have to be the CEO or the most senior person is because actually by taking the CEO out of that role, um, you can free them up to do other things. Actually running the team meetings might not be the best thing for the CEO to be doing. They still will need to make the big calls, but actually running the meetings, if you've got a great COO or another person who just has that respect and that ability um, to manage that team, they, they may be the right person to do it. The second critical role is what we would typically call the crisis coordinator. So that probably is uh, the most senior person or the person who's responsible for crisis management within the organization. It could be the business continuity person, the resilience person. Um, their role is to make sure that the team um, follows the plan and the ways of working that have been determined beforehand because the chair will not be as immersed in how the plan is supposed to play out as the crisis coordinator. So they are the um, kind of voice of truth, the voice of reason, the right-hand person for the team leader to make sure that the process is being followed and to make sure that the resources that the team has at their disposal are brought to their attention. Talked about the scribe, I'll talk about one, one more role and then briefly subject matter experts. The information lead is one that we um, recommend having as a team. They are the person responsible for making sure that uh, information is appropriately filtered and verified and then fed into the team. If you have multiple um, uh, channels of communication into multiple people on the team, you end up with different people on the, on the team having different levels of information, people having information which may not actually be uh, correct, um, and that leads to very uh, muddied and confused decision-making. Final part, and there are other roles, but um, you would then bring onto the team subject matter experts relevant to that particular situation. So to take the obvious example, in a cyber crisis, you would want the CISO uh, as part of that team. You would want technical representation. And I guess I would also say that in almost all crisis situations, almost without exception, you would want legal communication and HR represented. Um, final point, Alex, on this question. The principle, though, for your crisis management team is as small as possible while still having the right expertise in the room. If you're starting to get into double figures, 
that can be slightly unwieldy in terms of actually getting to a decision. And do you want all of those people in the room? Wouldn't some of them be better off outside of the room and doing stuff rather than talking about stuff? Yeah, some to, uh, like that expression, too many cooks spoil the, uh, you know, the, oh. food, the dinner, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you um, create a crisis resilient culture within an organization? Yeah, it's a, I talked about pre-crisis. Actually, even more important than the things I talked about is having a crisis-resistant uh, culture. And again, ultimately, that is driven by the leadership team of the organisation. The example that they set, the fact that the chief executive is the first one through the door when we're running the annual exercise, for example, that makes a really big difference. But what are um, some of the behaviours um, that we would observe within that crisis-resistant culture that they've um, that they have created. Well, the first is a willingness for the organisation to recognise that bad things can happen to them. Um, I was talking with a client last week, and clearly I won't name them, but they were very reticent to believe that any of their leadership could behave, could engage in inappropriate behaviour. But they were willing to believe that competitors' leadership team could uh, engage in inappropriate behaviour. Now, no one was saying that their leadership team was engaging in inappropriate behaviour, but to believe that it is impossible for a member of a leadership team within my organisation to believe it's impossible that they would engage in inappropriate behaviour and therefore we will not contemplate that kind of a risk within our organisation is flawed in my in my uh, in my view i'm not suggesting that you know this organisation or others are bad organisations but what i am suggesting is you have to be open to the possibility of something bad happening within your organization. And if you're not, you are creating the potential for crisis and the potential not to be ready for certain crisis types. And it doesn't um, mean that's inten intentional bad. No, no, no. Now to just simply the, the wrong training again, right? Absolutely. And the, um, the kind of conundrum here, the kind of catch-22 situation almost is that for the very best organisations, the ones whose quality standards and, uh, you know, other policies, procedures and behaviours actually are of a very high standard, they are the ones that find it hardest to countenance that something bad could happen. But because they have such high standards and probably such a good reputation, they would also be the ones who are most vulnerable if something bad does happen. So it's not about saying... Uh, or suggesting you are a bad organisation. It's just about saying, however good you are, you cannot rule out the possibility of something negative happening. But but you're right, Alex, it's not um, it's not they're seeking to cover up or, or they just can't conceive of it. Right. Um, second and critical element of a, a crisis-resistant culture is uh, a willingness by leadership to hear bad news and then to act on it um you know we've heard a lot over the last couple of years about you know whistleblowers who've been ignored um you know issues which have been brought to 
leaders' attention, but then not acted on. And what ultimately happens in those kinds of situations is people stop flagging uh, bad news, and so the leaders never get to hear about it. The best kind of um, crisis management is crisis prevention, and you only get that if you get to learn about uh, minor issues and incidents early on before they uh, escalate into uh, into crisis. So that's um, that's really really important, um, and a willingness to learn from near near misses. We talked about this earlier on, but not allowing. Uh, a near miss to pass without taking the learnings out of it. That creates a crisis resistant culture by taking time to learn. And final thing I'd mention is, you know, be careful about how people are incentivized to take, you know, a very kind of crude and obvious example. If people are simply, for example, incentivized on how many widgets they get out of the factory and that's it, therefore they are incentivized to do things faster, quicker, what might be the consequence of that? Well, health and safety might be the consequence of that. So mm -hmm. just leaders need to be careful about how people are rewarded and incentivized. And, you know, there are a number of crises over the years whereby, you know, a focus on commercial metrics may have contributed to catastrophic crises. Well, let's look at that a little bit further. What are some of the co uh, common flaws? in crisis management and crisis response? Yeah, there are uh, a number of uh, flaws, again, that I've um, observed over the, over the years, and they play out time and time again. So it's about understanding and recognizing them beforehand so that we can um, not make them or catch ourselves making them when the crisis happens. So I guess one of the, uh, one of the most common flaws is delaying decision making until it is too late so because of again the pressure and the situation that organizations and organizational leaders find themselves in they will constantly be seeking to reduce the uncertainty by getting more and more information to inform their decisions before committing to a decision um, the problem is, what I've seen is they're always looking, so they get the piece of information that they wanted, but they then want the next piece of information and the one after that and the one after that, therefore delaying decision-making until it's almost too late or irrelevant. So um, good crisis management is about being courageous in decision-making. Yes, absolutely. Gathering and analysing as much information as you can but then at a certain point, making, making that decision. And every decision in a crisis will bring with it potential downsides. But that's what leadership is about. It's about um, uh, making the best decision you, you can with the decision, with the information that you have at that, that moment in time. So that would be, you know, that would be one of the um, most common flaws. Another very common flaw. Uh, in crisis responses, fundamentally, people acting without thinking. Again, it, a lot of it comes down to the well, pressure, and it, it comes down to people's tendency to be to be fixers. So, people doing lots of things, but not necessarily doing the right things. What kind of things? Um, 
are we talking people that just kind of rush in and want to fix everything but get nothing accomplished or people that just do, uh, you know, really aren't in, supposed to be involved getting involved and getting in the way and causing problems? Yeah, let me characterize it in a couple of different ways. So let me think about, first of all, the most senior person in the business. Let's say it is the CEO. Um, what we will often see is because we are all, but I think CEOs in particular, are problem solvers and fixers. Let's say there's been a cyber attack. They will jump to the detail of what has happened and you know, start to be thinking or suggesting how to fix that rather than leading the organization and leading the response. So you will get very senior people, but also all members of the team wanting to do things. Now, if I flip that round and say, well, what does, um, what does good look like if people acting without thinking is bad? Well, what you really need to know in a crisis is what are we actually seeking to achieve here? So um, we call it strategic intent. At the start of a crisis, a strategic intent needs to be defined. In other, wor in other words, what does success look like? What are we actually seeking to achieve through our crisis management? Immediately, we then align everybody in the team around the same end goal. The second thing that teams should be doing is saying, what is our main effort now? Main effort means what are the priorities right now to fix? So if you have strategic intent, the end goal, a main effort, the priorities, that enables the actions that people take to fit within those two headings rather than somewhat ad hoc or random actions which are not organized under clear thought. We've only got uh, three minutes left, but I wanted to touch on this because this isn't far from where I live. It is a quote from Michael McCain, yeah. CEO of a Canadian food manufacturer, Maple Leaf Foods, which is yeah. huge here in Canada. Yeah. Um, I want to read his quote, and then I just want to hear what you have to say about this. Going through the crisis, there are two advisors I've paid no attention to. The first are the lawyers, and the second are the accountants. It's not about money or legal liability. This is about our being accountable for providing customers with safe food. So, Michael McCain, I believe, uh, in the year the incident occurred, won Business Person of the Year in, uh, in Canada. And for me, what he said there and everything I've read about the case, he epitomizes the perfect crisis leader, because in very simple terms, he says and does the right things. And what that quote epitomizes is they responded to that situation in a way which was absolutely in keeping with the values uh, of the organization and what they promised beforehand. I think his tongue was slightly in his cheek when he said he didn't listen to the lawyers or the accountants at all. My view is Leaders should listen to their advisors, but they should not follow their advisors. They listen and then they decide and they do what they believe is, is right. And that's exactly what Michael McCain did. And I would completely and utterly endorse his, his quote. And indeed, it's one that I uh, use uh, in presentations with clients all, all of the time. So uh, you have a great 
uh, crisis leader there in Canada, Alex. Yes, um, and for anyone who doesn't know, in Canada, um, I guess this is what, 14, 15 years ago, um, there was a listeria outbreak in a maple leaf uh, produ food production plant, and uh, about 21 people, I think it was, uh, died as a result. And I can say, and maybe I don't know if you know this, actually, Jonathan, but he was on radio doing radio commercials, and he was also on television. And there were network television commercials where he sat um, on his desk and said, I take responsibility for this and I'm not backing away until yeah. everything is taken care of. When court cases came out, he didn't uh, push back on them at all. He just took complete accountability and responsibility and um, they built back because of well, it. That's, that's the bottom line. He retained the trust and confidence of his customers and other stakeholders. It was, I'm sure, painful at the time, I'm sure it cost at the time, but he knew it was the right thing to do, but it was also the right thing for the long-term uh, uh, commercial viability of the organization. Well, we've come to the show. Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and sharing your expertise and time. And congratulations on the book, Crisis Proof. I'm looking forward to reading this. I wish it had come a week earlier so that I could have read it before our our talk today, but uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed our chat today. Um, I've quite enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Alex. I have enjoyed it too. Great. Um, you have a great day. Have a great holiday season because we are recording just before the holidays. So have a fantastic holiday season and all the best to you and yours. And to everybody listening and watching, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.